0: Hi all, you're listening to At The Beam, a medical education podcast where we discuss high-yield oncology with a focus in radiation oncology. We are Trudy and Josh and thank you for listening. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of At The Beat. I'm here with Josh Nell, And then today, this episode marks the start of season two. We've cycled through most of the disease sites, and now we're going to return to GU. So check out the episodes on intermediate high-risk prostate cancer from season one if you haven't listened already. Today, we're going to discuss bladder cancer, which is the second most common GU malignancy. Most patients are diagnosed in their seventh decade of life, and this disease predominantly affects white men. Diving into our case. Josh, the 70-year-old male, was referred to after a CT abdomen pelvis was obtained in the ED and showed a bladder lesion. He's been experiencing painless hematuria for the past month, but no other urinary symptoms. He's a retired celebrity hairstylist, the former guru of balayage, but nowadays spends most of his time hiking in the Santa Monica Mountains. He used to smoke half a pack a day, but has now cut down to two to three cigarettes. Anything in his social history that you just heard would place him at a higher risk for developing bladder cancer?
1: Yeah, so his uh, smoking history and exposure to hair dyes place him at a higher risk for bladder cancer. Um, In fact, smoking is the number one risk factor, and that can increase someone's risk up uh, to fivefold. Other risk factors include chemical exposures to paint, metals, petroleum, and anything that could cause chronic irritation of the bladder, such as UTIs. And certain drugs like uh, cyclophosphamide or infection with schistosoma hematobium, which uh, we may remember from medical school, and uniquely causes squamous cell carcinoma. But in terms of risk factors, it's uh, important to remember that smoking is the most dominant.
0: Exactly. And as you mentioned, squamous cell carcinoma is not a common histology in bladder cancer and represents only 3% of cases. So the most common is actually urethelial cancer, which is greater than 90% of cases in the U.S. Other less common histologies include adenocarcinoma and small cell carcinoma. So Josh, let's talk about bladder anatomy.
1: Yeah, so the general shape of the bladder is like a funnel. So the tip will represent the bladder neck, which uh, leads to the urethra. And above that, on the sides, are two ureteral orifices so if you were to connect the dots between the ureteral and urethral orifice that'll make a triangular shape and that's appropriately named the trigone probably more important is to have a solid understanding of the bladder layers because this is what builds into t-saging so the very inner layer is called the lamina propria which is coated by the detrusor muscle or the muscularis propria Our bladders are anchored to the anterior abdominal wall by the urecus, which is, um, if you remember, it's the remnant of a channel between the bladder and the umbilicus, and closes during embryogenesis. The bladder is then bundled by perivesical fat.
0: Great, and don't forget about the perivesical fat, because that is a very important part of stage T-staging. It is not common for bladder cancer to present with nodal metastases. In fact, most cases present with T1 disease, which is tumor confined to the lamina propria. The lymph node basins at risk in bladder cancer include the external iliacs, the internal iliacs, obturators, perivesical, and presacral lymph nodes. All right, so back to our case. You don't have the images or the report of the CT scan from the emergency room, but you know there was a quote-unquote tumor. How are you going to work up this patient?
1: So if this patient would want to obtain a cystoscopy and a urine cytology.
0: Great. And then in-office, cystoscopy reveals a sessile appearing mass in the posterior bladder wall. What do you do next? Are you going to jump to a TURP, which also stands for a transurethral resection of bladder tumor?
1: No, um, my next step would be to obtain imaging of the entire urinary tract, either through a CT scan or an MRI urogram.
0: Bingo! <laughs> Although this patient had a CT abdomen pelvis in the ED, he needs to have a contrasted scan with a CT urogram or a MR urogram. So, how is a CT urogram different from a CT abdomen pelvis? you might ask. It's a great question, and shout out to my friend in radiology who helped me delineate because, admittedly, I didn't know the nuanced details. Basically, the only thing is that a CT urogram prioritizes the excretory phase and contrasts time such to best image the kidney and ureters, whereas the contrast timing in a CTM pelvis is less intentional. The purpose of the scan is to, one, evaluate for nodal disease, two, rule out any lesions in the ureters or kidneys covered in the same urethelium, and three, help with T-staging if there is radiographic paravesical fat or nearby organ invasion. So let's talk about the staging. Josh, can you go through the TNM staging for us, please?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, T-staging will depend on the depth of invasion. So TIS would be a tumor that's carcinoma in situ. T1 will invade the lamina propria. T2 invades the muscularis propria. And then T3 will invade into the perivesical tissue or the perivesical fat. And then T4 will invade into adjacent organs, such as the prostate, seminal vesicles, uterus, or abdominal pelvic wall. Uh, So nodal staging would be fairly easy to remember. Um, N1 is when there's a single lymph node involved, N2 is when there are multiple lymph nodes, and N3 is if the common iliac lymph nodes are involved. In the AJCC 8th edition, patients with uh, node positive disease are considered to have stage three disease. So that'd be A if N1 and B if N2 to three versus in the 7th edition where any patient with node-positive disease was uh, considered stage 4.
0: Great job. So in order to appropriately stage the tumor, a TURP should be performed, and you want to make sure the biopsy is full thickness, including the full depth of detrusor muscle. So after TURP, the patient should get a single dose of intravesical chemotherapy, gemcitabine is preferred, within 24 hours, according to NCCN. This can reduce the relative five-year recurrence rate by 35% for selected patients, but it's a no-no to give intravesical chemo if there's concern for bladder perforation. All right, so this patient gets a CT urogram, which did not show anything suspicious outside the bladder. There's no hydro, there's no perivascular fat invasion. He gets a TERP, and pathology confirms muscle-invasive bladder cancer, invading the outer layer of the muscularis propria. What is this patient's stage and treatment options?
1: So this patient's stage would be a T2N0. And And before we talk about treatment options in any patient with muscle invasive bladder cancer or MIBC, uh, CT chest at the very least, plus or minus a bone scan, should be obtained to rule out any distant disease. I'd also wanna counsel him on uh, smoking cessation.
0: Great catch. Yeah, so there are no concerning symptoms for bone meds, so we will forego the bone scan for now. And a CT chest is clear. Now, what are his treatment options?
1: So for N0 or N1 disease, unless the tumor is a T4B, which means it's invading through the pelvic or abdominal wall, there's category one evidence to support both treatment paradigms of either neoadjuvant chemotherapy that's followed by a cystectomy or bladder preservation with concurrent chemoradiotherapy.
0: Great. And can you provide more detail show the patient elect for surgery?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So cisplatin-based chemotherapy is the drug of choice. However, if a patient is not a candidate for cisplatin, and usually this might be due to poor renal function, a cystectomy alone can be considered. However, it's preferable to give the patient chemotherapy up front, especially if they have N1 disease. The preferred regimen is DDMVAC, which consists of dose-dense methotrexate, benblastin, doxorubicin, and cisplatin for about three to six cycles. An alternative regimen is GEMSYS for about four cycles. So this would be followed by radical cystectomy and bilateral pelvic lymphadenectomy, which would dissect the common internal iliac, external iliac, and obturator lymph nodes.
0: Great. So after hearing this, the patient would prefer a bladder preservation approach. He asks, can I still be cured without surgery?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And the short answer is concurrent chemoradiotherapy offers similar disease-specific survival and overall survival compared to surgery. So at five years, about 60% of patients are still alive with their native bladder. And any bladder preservation case, it's important to remember that maximal transurethral resection of the tumor is key before starting chemoradiotherapy.
0: Yeah. So don't forget, to always advocate for a maximal TURP in any bladder preservation case. So this patient, he lacks for chemo radiation gets this maximal TURP. What is your prescription dose and radiosensitizing chemo of choice?
1: So in this patient with T2N0 disease, I'd wanna to treat to 45 gray, followed by an interval cystoscopy. If there's a complete response, then I would boost to 64 gray. Uh, Radiotherapy can be given concurrently with cisplatin, low-dose gemcitabine, or 5-FU and mitomycin C. Elective pelvic lymph nodes are optional and can be considered for those at high risk for nodal metastasis, such as more advanced T-stages. And this patient, I would omit nodal radiation for simulation. I want to obtain a CT scan with IV contrast, patient in a VAClock, and make sure that the patient's bladder is empty. So this will help with daily reproducibility. And for my 45-gray CTV, I would contour the empty outer bladder wall and then add about a 1.5 cm isotropic margin to form the PTV.
0: Great. So if the patient achieves a complete response after 45-gray on his cystoscopy and you're unable to localize the original tumor on the ct scan, how are you going to boost him?
1: So in this case, since I'm unable to see the original tumor, I would cone down to the entire bladder plus a tighter margin, so about half a CM, and then boost that to 64 gray.
0: Okay. And then if you were able to localize the tumor, one strategy would be to cone down to 54 gray to the entire bladder with tighter PTV margins of about half a centimeter, then boost the tumor bed to 64 gray. As an aside, some physicians find a full bladder is more conducive in planning a partial bladder boost, so you would want to get a full bladder scan at the time of ct sim. So let's talk about dosimetric constraints. Um, Josh, what is the D-max for the bladder in conventional fractionation?
1: That would be 79 gray.
0: Okay. And then what about the rectum and small bowel?
1: So it's the same for the rectum, which is 79 gray. Uh, for the small bowel, the D-max we would look at is 50 gray.
0: Excellent. And then, yes, the small bowel is really the limiting uh, structure, which we should pay attention to upon plan review. So, let's say the patient wanted to complete treatment faster. Are there alternative fractionation schedules available?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, another very good option is to treat with hypofractionation. So, this is a 50 grain, 20 fractions, and this shortens the RT course for the patient by about two and a half weeks. This should also be given concurrently with uh, chemotherapy. In BC two zero zero one, the chemotherapy that was given was five FU and mitomycin C. Addition of chemotherapy to radiotherapy demonstrated a significant disease-free survival benefit.
0: Okay, so let's get him to back to hiking sooner. Let's switch fractionation. Say we treat him to fifty-five gray in twenty fractions. Uh, you're reviewing the plan and notice that two thirds of the rectum is receiving forty gray. Are you okay with this?
1: No. So the rectum is receiving too much dose, and the plan would need to be reoptimized to ensure that the rectum V40 is ideally less than 50%. If this goes any higher, uh, the patient's at high risk for acute and late GI toxicity.
0: Great. And then what is your small bowel constraint for 20 fractions?
1: So for the V37, I'd look at uh, no more than 90 cc, V33, less than 130 cc, and then a D max of 40 gray.
0: Great. Okay, plan is approved, and you're seeing the patient clinic before he starts treatment. What side effects are you going to counsel him on?
1: So acutely, he might experience some fatigue, nausea, diarrhea, and urinary bother. In the long term, we'd want to monitor for radiation cystitis, some proctitis, aneuritis, and potential small bowel damage.
0: Excellent. And let's say the patient is diagnosed with T3 disease. What is that again, and how would that change your PTV margins?
1: So T3 would mean that the patient's tumor was invading through the perivesical fat. And because of this, I would want to add a more generous PTB margin of about 2 cm rather than the
0: 1.5. Okay. Well, what if the patient presented with a positive internal iliac lymph node? How does that change your radiation plan?
1: So in this case, I would treat with standard fractionation. So 45 gray to elective lymph nodes and then cone down to the bladder to treat to 64 gray. With a positive lymph node in bladder preservation, I would also boost the gross node to 64 gray if our dosimetric constraints could be met.
0: All right. And then what's the significance if a patient presents with hydronephrosis?
1: So there's a suggestion that hydronephrosis at presentation is a negative prognostic factor, and these patients would have lower rates of a complete response with bladder preservation and that they may be better suited for surgery. So if for whatever reason the patient undergoes bladder preservation, the patient must be stented first to relieve the hydronephrosis before definitive chemoradiotherapy. Also keep in mind that this patient now may not be an optimal candidate for a spun.
0: Great. And then what if after completion of hypofractionated chemoradiation, this patient has persistent T2 disease, meaning there is still tumor invading into the muscularis propria? What are you going to do?
1: So at this point, I'd probably advocate for a salvage cystectomy.
0: Excellent. And then finally, what's our follow-up plan for this patient?
1: Yeah, so in the first two years after treatment, it's very important to get a cystoscopy every three months, a CT or MR urogram, and a CT chest and labs every three to six months, and then a urine cytology every six to 12 months.
0: Great job, Josh. So this concludes our episode on bladder cancer. Thank you to Dr. Nicholas Zararski at Case Western for their help with today's case. You can find the show notes on our website at thebeam.com. Be well and remember to trust, but always verify.